Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Here he is to discuss This Is How You Lose Her, Juno Diaz. Mr. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's very kind. Uh, very, very kind. I'm actually just, I've always, uh, I always think it's not a reading unless there's young people here. Like, not like young, like young. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm not even slightly perturbed. Um, yeah, no worries. I always feel, I'm just glad they can't understand the language, yeah? So, we hope. Uh, uh, guys, let's just do it. First of all, I wanted to thank the library uh, for making this possible. Yeah, all the folks who kind of busted their ass. The, um, from the board on down, selection committees, um, thank you all so much. Uh, again, the people who um, here at the bookstore who put this all together, you know it's a ton, ton of invisible work. Um, and uh, I really appreciate them uh, kind of laboring on our behalf. You'll hear it before and you'll hear it again. It's like always we're the beneficiary of a bunch of people doing shit that they never get paid enough for. And thank you so much for that. Um, uh, I wanted to thank all the folks over in the spillover room. What's up? You know. What's up, hey? That's it. Yeah, man. See, I, 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 I didn't realize I'd be able to see some stuff. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And finally, uh, thank you all for coming out. It is a Friday night, yeah? Yeah. Fucking billion better things to do in L.A. on a Friday night. So you know it's true. So thank you. Um, and finally, just some quick questions so we get it right to it. Uh, any immigrants here? Let's see it. A little quiet. Yeah. How about folks from New Jersey? Jersey, fucking, huh? How about folks from the Caribbean? Guys, what's going on, man? Long day at work. How about the Dominicans? How? But wait a minute, you guys are splitting the difference, man. All right. How about folks? You see, I'm naming all the groups that, whether they like to or not, have to actually claim me. You know, so. Uh, how about folks of African descent? Woo! Sometimes that doesn't, people have to think it out. How about black people, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. It's very nice to see you guys all here, man. Really appreciate it. So let's just get to work, yeah? Um, let's start with just some questions and then we'll do a reading, yeah? So let's talk, let's get to it. <laughs> Ah, yes. Somebody could hear that. Um, uh, no, that's nothing. I'm, I'm not working on absolutely anything right now, right? I'm, I'm just not. Um, so, it's all right. How come you're not, you're not on Twitter? Oh, yeah, I'm not on Twitter. Um, because I'm fucking old, man. That shit is... Nah, I mean, everybody's mileage varies, you know? Like, And a lot of people, they... There's that whole shit, like, 
I don't seem to work well with too much attention. You know? I think that there's... It strikes me that everyone's got a very much a different relationship to how attention uh, interacts with their kind of what we would pompously call their artistic instrument. And for me, silence and not knowing much or even not giving in to my desire for people to be like, oh, that's cute, has, helps my art enormously, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bunch of lame excuses. I just... What am I reading now? Um, I've been reading a lot. Yeah, uh, it's typical. Um, I was just telling the other group. I was. Um, I have a friend of mine. She was like super mad at me. Someone who grew up in Jersey, total Jersey girl. She's um, just kind of brilliant woman of color, and she was like, "Yo, you haven't fucking read any Jane Austen, so get on it." You know. So I'm like halfway through Persuasion. You know. So. And then I was like countering it by reading, um, by reading Alexander Dumas's uh, Three Musketeers, you know. Well, I mean, come on, man. I was like, I want to read from my island too. So, you know, he's a descendant of the beloved western half of the island. So, um, and I've uh, been reading a bunch of other kind of scholarly stuff that's really weird, you know. So, kind of, yeah. I mean, I haven't. Again, I, I just got off the cycle of reading for the for some some big organizations, and you end up reading like hundreds of books. So my brain is kind of fucking fried, you know. But yeah, now there's there's a lot of good stuff out there, you know. I wouldn't recommend mine anyway. Yeah. No, it's like a fucking come on. It's, that's just astounding conflict of interest, you know. Um. I mean, there's a ton of stuff, like, I mean, it depends on what your bag is right now, you know? Um, I don't know if you guys are, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird, right? Like, I really, really love my boys, Francisco Goldman's new uh, memoir, you know? Um, the, uh, the in no, no, the, the internal circuit or interior circuit? Thank you. Interior Circuit. Guys, I literally haven't slept in two days. So it's Interior Circuit, yeah? That book is fucking fantastic. Um, I started kind of just wildly rereading my um, dear friend, uh, <laughs> my dear friend No Violet's novel, We Need New Names. Um, you know her, No Violet? Yeah, Bula Wild. It's okay, I think that's amazing. <laughs> and that, We Need New Names, is really, really spectacular, you know, as far as a novel, so stuff like that. How autobiographical is the junior character? Right, how autobiographical, and then we're going to go to hands. <laughs> no, not because I don't mind you shouting at me, because I, I'm worried that the shy people won't say shit. <laughs> you know? So... It depends on which book it is. So when I was writing uh, my first book, Drowned, that was pretty, I guess what, like 95% autobiographical. When I wrote Oscar Wilde, it was like 2% autobiographical. And then when I wrote the This is How You Loser, about 50%. So depending on the project. <laughs> but, uh, 
Tigrita está pasadísimo, man. Yeah, man. So it all depends. I mean, but you also got to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, look, it's you can't really expect much veracity from someone who works in fiction. You know, it's like you asking a fiction writer, like, oh, how truthful is it? Oh no, you know the very the very framework means that I'm gonna fucking be enticed to lie anyway. So, yeah. So what do we got? Let's do it. All right. Do you find that teaching might be Yeah, do, do I, the, does teaching is maybe hindering my writing process? I, for me to blame anything but my own fucking shittiness is like ridiculous. It's got nothing to do with anyone or anything. I'm just super damn slow. And I think, again, I, I sometimes think if I liked um, deeply, I mean deeply, if I deeply liked applause more, I would write way faster. You know? When you want fucking people to love you, you will fucking bust your ass. But I'm on some like, like disliked middle child shit. I'm, I'm always, I don't know, I'm always like kind of fucking in resistance for no reason I can explain. Yeah. I mean, it's all right. There's plenty of room for slow ass writers. Let's try something. Is there something all the way back? I see a hand there, gray shirt of some form, glasses. How do you, uh, how do you become a better writer? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, no, I mean, look, I don't mean that in any way sarcastic or anything. It's pretty straightforward how one becomes a better artist than anything. It's always, first thing is, improve your relationship with the world. And what I mean is that, like, your real power comes out of your relationship with the world, you know? Uh, that's one. Two, expose yourself to your form. And three, practice your form. Everything else is nonsense. You know, at least from me. Uh, though, again, when you're fucking cut off and alone and you feel like you have any, no power or no, you know, no way forward, everything and anything might help. So it's, it's easy to just kind of say this stuff is good and the other stuff is bad. But guys, man, it's, when you're an artist, this is such a lonely road that you've got to grab onto anything, man. And you'd be amazed where you can draw comfort and encouragement from, you know? So... Okay, this side, sir. Will you be interested in working in any theatrical stuff? Any work into plays? Yeah, I mean, I've had a couple people do like kind of play stuff um, in San Francisco and a little bit in New York. But I, I, again, some people are awesome. They can do everything. I just, you know, they can do plays. They can do film scripts. I mean, someone else would have to do it because I just suck, dude. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they even sent me stuff. My friend who was doing some play stuff. Um, in San Francisco, they even sent me some stuff for me to look at, and I, I didn't have anything to fucking comment on. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't feel like authoritative enough to say anything about this. But you know, I don't know. I, I go to play a lot. I don't know about anyone else. I'm like a kind of a play every two weeks kind of guy. So I absolutely love the form. I just wouldn't do nothing with it. Yeah, I couldn't do anything with it. Oh. Alright. Um, so do you have any advice 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think the thing about growing up as a person of color in a country like this one is that by its very nature, you are well prepared to deal with white supremacy if you aren't in, if you aren't in that delusional hole that we're encouraged to fall into, which is to deny, negate, and negative hallucination. I mean, it, this is a society that encourages women to pretend there's no patriarchy. There's a society to encourage people of color to pretend there's no white supremacy. There's a society that encourages people with no money to pretend that there's not a parasitic, avaricious, fucking vampire elite. And so, I think that as long as you, well, no, as long as you haven't fallen for the default delusion that makes you deny the reality which has been predating on you, chances are you know everything you need to know about this place. And all the lessons that have helped you get to where you are, which is that community, solidarity, and endless, invincible, almost supernatural hope. That tends to be what our greatest weapons are for systems that, you know, have an enormous weight of history of attempting to disenfranchise, marginalize, and to pretend that anything that we say about reality has no bearing whatsoever. And again, it's a tough battle, but we've been doing it in a very long time. The fact that our, our bodies, the fact that our bodies have survived this gives one great hope that our stories, which are even more invulnerable than the flesh, will also survive and hopefully thrive, you know? But, uh, I mean, more concretely, it's just, more concretely, the contradictions of the market logic of our moment in capital weigh more heavily on disenfranchised communities. Said another way, yeah, is that the way shit is fucked up vis-a-vis -vis the arts is that it bears heavily on those of us who are not the first called up for anything. And therefore, I think if you're going to be an artist, chances are it might not be a bad idea to excuse your art for having to supply you with a full salary. I think if you don't demand of your art that it be a job, you're much more likely to thrive as an artist. Most people I know give up their art because they want it to be a job, to give them their salary, to give them... This is not a system that can support that for even the white majority. And so certainly less of us will have that. And I think your art would be much more likely to stay alive for the long term. It needs to stay alive if you just let it be the art and get comfortable with working another job. If that's not what I would want for anybody. But certainly it's what I did for many, many years. You know? And again, and I fucking was, quote unquote, discovered very early. I think that we need the artists we have, we need them to keep going. And 
that early discouragement, that, that people jumping out, because in their minds they think if they haven't done X, they didn't make it. If this thing isn't paying my rent, I didn't make it. If I'm not on the front of a magazine, I didn't make it. If I don't have an agent by this time, I didn't make it. If I haven't published three books by this time, I didn't make it. That kind of super harsh metric has in many ways caused us to lose some of our greatest artists because it's much easier to imagine yourself of an artist if you just imagine that it is the practice that you give yourself to Caesar onto Caesar but to art belongs to something even greater and it's not easy because this is a culture that tells you that if something doesn't make money it's not worth it but I would rather you guys be in the long game because we need you than to be quickly discouraged simply because they tell you you suck if it's not paying your rent. Yeah. Wait a long time before going back and rereading your stories. What do you go through? My, I did hear the first three words. Uh, your revision process? Oh, yeah, no, I, I, re I revise all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's very it's boring. There's nothing to tell. I, I almost, no, I almost wish there was some, like, mechanical information that I could give that would have, like, sort of intellectual content. But I just, I just do it a lot, you know? I mean, look, some people can hold their breath, man. Remember when you were kids and you always knew who was the fucker who could hold their breath the longest, you know? <laughs> but the same way, I, guys, I can hold my breath. I can hold a story for years to rewrite. And I don't know whether that's been good or bad, but it's been me. So certainly, yeah. I get a feeling there's like a lot of writers here, yo. <laughs> Fuck, man. All right, no, no worries. No bigotry. All right, is there anything in that vector over there? Anyone over there? Okay, no, I'm beyond you, but then we'll come down. What do you guys got for me? Um, when you were writing these books, what kind of reaction were you expecting from your audience or your readers? And did you expect such a big audience? No, I mean, of course, I, it, part of that question is like, what did I expect when I was writing these books and did I expect a really big audience? Part of it means actually telling you something about who I really am which tends to be hard when you're in a bunch of group of people who are like, don't know you and you don't know them and you're both really nervous. It's like, um, part of who I really am is that I can tell you this from the bottom of my heart. I almost wish some of my friends were here so they could like corroborate. Is I, and it, it's really super ironic is that I, that's not, why I do it or why I did it or my imaginary didn't run towards success. There was never a moment, I mean I could say it with a clean heart where I was like having fantasies of standing before a crowd of 200 people in LA. For me I was a Dominican immigrant nerd from New Jersey who thought that if I had six readers I was in. You know? And for me, the, whole, the plan was that the books would have a, the way books worked on me. I mean, my relationship to writing is, comes out of my relationship to reading. And for me, books worked on me in a very long, longitudinal way. And so my dream was always that I would write a book that somebody could live with for 20 or 30 years and it would keep speaking to them, you know? And since I was the only reader I knew growing up, I didn't expect that to happen to a thousand people. I just was hoping for one person like me. It was like kind of just passing the baton. 
You know, guys, having prestige and social and cultural capital, that's swell. You're, you don't, you're not like, oh, that's terrible, you know? <laughs> but but you, your true motives for things are always revealed like in the folk tales when you get what people think you really wanted, you know? I'm like, sounds... <laughs> Sounds very weedish. All right. Uh, I'm a high school teacher. Yes, the teachers, man. Um, I teach 12th graders, mostly Latino, low-income kids, and they—it's an IB school, so they want to apply to like Stanford and Oxford and MIT. Um, what insight could you share with them about the college application process? Hmm. Yeah. I mean. College application process is, again, I think that one of the things about the internet is that it's fucking hyper-saturated the amount of information you can get on colleges, you know? I mean, I don't think there's anything I can tell them that they don't know right off the bat just with a cursory Google search, you know? Um, my sense of it has been that uh, the kind of pressure that the poor kids are on or under to get into select colleges is is really kind of dreadful, you know? So I guess my first thing isn't even advice or anything. It's more like a, a kind of a sympathetic reaction, you know? It's like, it's a lot of fucking pressure, man. Um, I think it's, the, you know, one of the things I keep discovering is that on average, a lot of young people, and I'm sure you see this a lot, um, I'm not always worried about the kids who are applying to these schools already. It's that we have so many brilliant young kids who are, don't even think of themselves as qualified. You know, it's the kids who are like sitting around being super geniuses, whether they're in high school or even college. I mean, my brightest kids of color in college don't even think that they're up for grad school when they're three times smarter than all the kids in the PhD programs, but because they've never been told that this is a viable thing and they've never had any kind of mentoring around it. And so I think the kids who are already going in, the best thing that you can tell them is what they already know, apply wide. You know, the real thing is that we've got to get a wider selection of our community applying. I mean, it's, guys, I've been teaching at MIT for 12 years, I can tell you, and I say this endlessly, you don't have to be smart to be a college professor at a select college. Take it from me. You do not, no, you do not have to be smart. Telling you that you have to be smart is enough to scare anyone because there's no metric on what smart is. But what I can tell you is that if you want to be a college professor, you want to be a grad student, all you got to do is show the fuck up. And if you show the fuck up and you don't get depressed and you don't get demoralized because they hate us, you're going to do well, man. And we don't say this enough to people. You do not need to be the chosen person to be a grad student anywhere. They tell you that to scare you. You just got to show up and not get discouraged by their malign shadows. You know? Yeah. All right, almost time for a reading. So. Keep talking. Yeah? Oh, there we go. Yeah, so um, I, I got a bunch of godchildren, and my youngest goddaughter, she's like five, and uh, 
She's five now, yeah. And so she speaks, get this, she speaks uh, English, she speaks Mandarin, and she speaks uh, Japanese. And so she learned to... Um, she learned to speak enough Spanish to ask me, and the, what was the first thing she runs up to me to ask? She's like, why are you so old? <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> the fucking kids. Yeah, so a quick reading, yeah? Yeah, how goes it, how goes it over there in the spillover? What's up, gang? <laughs> yeah, man. They really should have, I actually think they should always ask the writer to sponsor a, uh, like a kind of a liquor brindy. Yeah. Like, because they definitely should have a bottle of whiskey. All right, let's do it. Just read um, something very small, yeah? So... Here we go. So just a small piece from the latest book. It's, um, again, I, I, uh, I always had, uh, I grew up with my sisters and my brothers, but my sisters were always super interesting. And they, my sisters always had this theory that, like, the guys who always were the shittiest to them, they never got their just desserts. You know, like, the world would always give them a job, or they would, like, fucking win the lottery, or, like, it was just... <laughs> perverse and so I remember when my sister was a Rutgers with me she like ran up and was like yo fucking the universe changed and this guy who was fucking with me got like fucked up and so I was uh, I took that to heart and so I thought I would write a story about what happens when like the, the super asshole of all my fiction when when it, the world turns on him finally so this is this end point where this uh, my kind of um, my protagonist, uh, everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong in his life after his girlfriend breaks up with him. So this is after like everything has gone wrong. So it's the end of like a five-year struggle, and um, yeah, and you know his body is decayed. Because, I don't know, you know when people break up with you or they hurt you really bad, it's like, you see why that fucking show snapped? It's like, for real? <laughs> uh, so anyway, I was like, I gotta break this dude's body if I want to equal the pain, you know? So anyway, here we go. It's from uh, the last chapter. It's called, this is how, uh, it's called um, Cheater's Guide to Love. You work harder than you've ever worked at everything. The teaching your physical therapy, your regular therapy, your reading, your walking. You keep waiting for the heaviness to leave you. You keep waiting for the moment you never think about the X again. It does not come. You ask everybody you know, how long does it take to get over it? There are many formulas. One year for every year you dated, Two years for every year you dated? It's a matter of willpower. You never get over it. One night that winter, you go out with all the boys to a ghetto-ass Latin club in Mattapan Square. 
Outside it's close to zero, but inside it is so hot that everybody stripped down to their t-shirts. And there's this girl who keeps bumping into you. You say to her, pero mi amor, ya. And she says, ya yourself. <laughs> She's Dominican and super tall. I could never date anyone as short as you, she informs you very early on in your conversation. <laughs> but, but she gives you her number, and at the end of the night, all evening, your boy Elvis sits at the bar, drinking quietly, shot after shot of Remy. The week before, he took a solo trip to Santo Domingo, a ghost recon, didn't tell you about it until after. He tried looking for the baby's mom and the little boy Elvis Jr., but they had moved and no one knew where they were. None of the numbers he had for them worked. I hope they turn up, he says. I hope so too. You take the longest walks. Every 10 minutes you drop and do squats or push-ups. It's not running, but it raises your heart rate better than nothing. And afterward, you are in so much nerve pain that you can barely move. Some nights you have neuromancer dreams where you see your ex-girlfriend and the boy and another, another figure familiar waving at you in the distance, somewhere very close to laugh that wasn't laughter. And finally, when you feel like you can do so without blowing up into burning atoms, you open up a folder you have kept hidden under your bed, the doomsday book. Copies of all the emails and all the photos from your cheating days, the ones the ex-girlfriend found and compiled and mailed to you a month after she ended it. <laughs> Dear Junior, for your next book, probably the last time she ever wrote your name. You read the whole thing cover to cover because yes, she put covers on it. <laughs> you are surprised at what a fucking chicken shit coward ass you are. It kills you to admit it. You are astounded by the depths of your mendacity. When you finish the book a second time, you say the truth. You did the right thing, Negra. You did the right thing. She is right, Elvis says. This would make a killer book. <laughs> the two of you have been pulled over by a cop and are waiting for Officer Dickhead to finish running your license. Elvis holds up one of the photographs. She is Colombian, you say to him, and he whistles, que viva Colombia, <laughs> and hands you back the book you know what? You really should write a cheater's guide to love. You think, you says, and he says, I do. It takes a while. You see the tall girl, you go to more doctors, you celebrate Arlene's PhD defense, and then one June night, you scribble the ex's name, and the half-life of love is forever. You write a couple more things, then you put your head down. The next day, you look at the pages, for once, you don't want to burn them or give up writing forever. It's a start, you say, to the room. And that's about it. In the months that follow, you bend to the work because it feels like hope, like grace, 
and because you know in your lying cheater's heart that sometimes a start is all we ever get. That's it. Thank you. Um, all right, let's do a few more questions and we'll do a signing. You had a question here for a while, yeah? Yeah, so I'm going to go in. Wait, you wrote it down? Yeah. Okay. I'm all in. You're going in, all right? What role does white supremacy play in gentrification? Details. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm not exactly qualified to, uh, no, I mean, I'm not exactly qualified to dilate too much about it specifically. I can tell you about how it's impacted the communities I grew up in, and perhaps maybe it speaks to larger questions. I mean, look, we all know that by the time you notice that they're driving poor people out of your community, it's too late. It's already too late. I mean, the way that capital gets mobilized in our current sort of moment guarantees you that banks have already targeted neighborhoods for that kind of investment, for that kind of community, for that kind of construction. Usually it would take a superhuman effort to preserve the sort of organic communities that already live there against this kind of onslaught. Um, look, gang, part of the thing is is that we're at a place where because of just the enormous high levels of police violence, poor folks are constrained, chased, harassed, and every possible instrument to try to break their ability to organize around anything having to do with their communities. And it's, it's a big old struggle. I mean, look, guy, just in the last year, a place like Cambridge, and Cambridge where MIT is, it's not exactly a poor place, and yet there's all sorts of poor communities in Cambridge. And these communities are being driven out in ways that you can't imagine. And part of it is is that we have no investment in, we don't really believe in the stuff we claim to believe in. We have no investment in affordable housing for anybody. you know. And when it comes down to it, we haven't created subjectivities, like ways of being inside ourselves, where we don't pursue our privilege. Everybody pursues their fucking privilege as rapidly as they can. So if you have money, you're gonna pursue your fucking privilege. You know, and fuck everybody else. And I think that that's part of the problem that lays outside of the way that bank and certain instruments of capital get mobilized. The long-term effects for poor communities that are driven out of sort of embedded social networks are devastating. You know, you take communities, break them apart, and scatter them to the wind, and the one thing that they had to sort of maintain their survival, they're stripped of, you know? And so the effects have been really incredible. I grew up in a community where, because we had an active landfill, nobody wanted to move in. So we were like, you know, we were really protected. They closed the landfill, covered it, and our community absolutely imploded. They like doubled rental prices and nobody that I grew up 
with is still living in this community. Literally in 10 years, the entire community was displaced. Gone. Everybody. It was like someone dropped a slow bomb on it. And so, you know, until we get around to really protecting community versus protecting privilege, it's going to be the same old fucking story. And we've got to fight because if we don't fight, the shit is worse than if we just sit there and take it. And there are victories, you know, but it's a tough fucking struggle, man. And people, I mean, shit, this place looks like it didn't always look like this around here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, economic violence is for real. Well, you guys are really fucking making a motherfucker work, yo. <laughs> I'm waiting for that. You know, Wittgenstein said. <laughs> All right, come on, let's do this. What do we got? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that I have, um, I'm not sure that the kind of the transcendental paradigm has been useful for me, that like one transcends into that stable place where one discovers their voice, where one publishes their book and discovers that they're a writer or is confirmed. I think for some people that stuff works really well. Uh, it's never worked for me. I'm, I'm not convinced I've discovered my voice at all. I'm not convinced that that I'm there, you know. Certainly I've made it at the level of prestige and power and privilege in that sense, but the part of the reason I think that it takes me so long to work is because I spend most of my time just consumed in doubt. Probably not the answer people want, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I feel any of that. I don't, f I think that for me, I am stuck, you guys, in the moment of always questioning myself. And it is what it is, you know? And uh, it doesn't lead to happy times. <laughs> I think those people who make it are probably much happier. Yeah. All right, hand straight back here. I see you, yeah. Oh, what's a recurring soundtrack that's playing throughout my books? Yeah, man, but it's like age shit, you know? <laughs> right? So I, I, I'm a kid from the 80s, you know? So I grew up with... I mean, it's funny that I've been listening to hip-hop longer than my students have been alive, <laughs> you know? And I'm always catching kids like who are 31 or 32, cold lying. They're like, oh, yeah, I remember when that shit was on the radio. I'm like, no, you did not, motherfucker. <laughs> This is the weirdest thing about this generation. It's like, it's almost as if they can't imagine that they weren't present. <laughs> Where I completely cede to my parents. I'll be like, yes, I don't remember this shit. I wasn't fucking alive. <laughs> I think it's that kind of todologo thing where you want to feel like you know and everything. So for me, my time period is you got to understand, I came up with all that fucking early hip hop. Like all of it. Like I'm... I still got fucking special ed on high rotation, yo. You know? I fucking, I saw fucking Big Daddy Kane. And I saw him in concert just a few months ago, yo. You know? I'm that fucking dude, yo. 
But you know, I got like all these young people around me, my older godchildren, they're like, oh, listen to this shit. So they got me like listening to stuff online. They got some young cat named Bodega Bam. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. Yo, what the fuck, man? <laughs> so, you know, they try to keep me like creaking a little bit. Yeah. But remember, at that time when I was coming up, at the same time as hip hop was fucking taking the fuck over, there was also like the clash. And I remember fucking the clash was the first time I found out about Palestine. You know? It was true. I was like, you know, I'm sitting there, it's fucking 1981, and I'm like, oh shit, what the fuck is Palestine, yo? <laughs> so, yeah, fuck me up. I could have been an investment banker. <laughs> I wanted to know, as a writer with um, transnational roots, right, how do you hold yourself accountable to the communities that claim you and the communities that you claim, in particular, the DR and Haiti, being like a writer. How do I, I, how do I hold myself accountable? <laughs> but explain, but just model that. I'm not, I'm not teasing you. I'm laughing because I'm thinking like, ain't nobody trying to claim me, man. <laughs> but go on, man. What do you mean, like model that? Like what would that, what, what would that mean? Like how do, you, how do you leverage your social and cultural capital <laughs> to, to support <laughs> grassroots efforts? you know, in DR and Haiti, whatever that work looks like for you, like how do you, how do you? Yeah, you guys, I'm gonna have to say, you gotta look that shit up because, no, I'm not saying that to try to like duck the question, it just, that enters into the genre of boasting. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I, I do a lot of work in my community or one tries to, you know, but if you're interested, you can look it up. But I would say is that, again, it is absolutely essential for us to keep doing the kinds of civic engagements that many of us do. These societies, as you well know, have become profoundly unequal in ways that would even give a Victorian fucking industrialist pause. <laughs> and so, therefore, unfortunately, the vast inhuman gap that is growing chasm-wide in all of our societies, whether back home in San Domingo, and the only thing, or in New Jersey, the only thing that stands in the way is us and our civic engagements. And so therefore, being involved, supporting community groups, supporting communities, and attempting to, if you've got any privilege, to direct it towards undermining capital privilege, that's the only thing you can do. And some of us have longer style commitments and some of us shorter style commitments. The idea is that if you, if you just do a little, you're doing a lot. You know, most people don't got the tolerance I do for this stuff, you know? But I think I would, I would answer, that. I wish I almost had some, this is when you want a hype man to be like, yo, this motherfucker does. <laughs> but I am, in, I am involved. I get a lot of death, what do they call them? Death threats, which is very funny. Who would send a death threat to a writer? That's very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People think if, if you criticize, like, you know, Dominican treatment of the fucking Haitian Dominican community, it's like you committed a venal sin. But it's all right. All right, let's do it. Last. You know, that's wonderful. So, what is, what is it that makes you feel okay? Because I'm mixed with 
thank you. No, I, I guess I didn't mean that as a kind of a pity party because I, I got very, I'm, I'm one of these fortunate people. Like I have to say, like I got, you know, a bunch of privilege that accrued to me beyond anything I did. I was like in a community where I was straight and people didn't give me the shit that my friends who weren't straight got. You know, I was considered part of the community in ways I would not have been considered, you know, if I came from another fucking, you know, sort of identity point. And so I kind of got lucky. And again, my actual cultural community was in my physical neighborhood. And that also was a huge help. That doesn't happen for everybody, man. Not everybody grows the fuck up around the very people that you saw. I saw them before we got to the airplane, and I saw them afterwards. You know, that doesn't always happen. So I got a lot of those things that are good. I just, I guess I meant that, again, when communities get around to selling simplicities about themselves, those of us who trouble those simplicities by the very fact that we're immigrants are not the first people they claim. By the very fact that you have some sort of ambiguity, let's say you're racially ambiguous in a community that doesn't like that. Let's say that you belong to the, the stigmatized class. And you know, in a place like Santo Domingo, Santo Domingo, for those of you who are Dominicans, you guys know, poverty in Santo Domingo is a physical and psychic deformity. The fact that's how it's viewed, that's how it is. So the fact that I come from a very, very specific neighborhood in Santo Domingo, Villa Juana, which everybody knows where it is and what it is and who my fucking parents are, that immediately is like you're to the elites who determine what is Dominican and what isn't at a kind of a national level, you're already fucking an inhuman. And there's a whole bunch of levels where national projects leave us out of the formula, even if there could be no national project without our participation. And so for me, it was more about the struggle any of us have dealing with these incredibly simplistic fucking nationalist recipes that usually leave us the fuck out. And then many of us happily will celebrate even if sometimes we're victimized by them. So, you know, my community is great as long as I'm fucking winning awards. But God fucking forbid I am like, yo, this shit is a fucked up racist fucking place. And then they're like, yo, come to the airport, I'll put a bullet in you. You know? And that's okay. That's part of our struggle. But one must always know, guys, is that especially those of us who are immigrants, those of us who trouble these fucking fictitious racial paradigms, we know how quickly communities can go from, oh, we're all like family to fuck you. <laughs> you know, and nobody wants to claim an immigrant, either the country that we leave or the country that we come home. You know, we fucking create a lot of problems for their fictions about themselves, for their sense of continu continuity and power. So, anything over here, gang? Well, I have a question. Okay, <laughs> uh, you're definitely up next. Please, please, please. Okay. Um, you said in the past that writing is your calling, but I also read in an interview that you have a lot of ambivalence about writing as a project of writing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Damn, you guys. <laughs> nah, thank you. I'll repeat that. So, yeah, no, I mean, look, gang, again, it is absolutely okay to be an artist and not have drank the Kool-Aid about your art. 
I feel like we belong into the weirdest cycle where the person who's got their head further up the ass of their art is the most convincingly artistic. <laughs> it is absolutely okay, you guys, to be awesome or to be engaged in something that you have ambivalence about. I am not necessarily always convinced that the, what I do is an unquestioned good. I just am not convinced. And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of interrogating and thinking about it. I mean, I think that, look, everyone's got their relationship to their art, but if the only relationship possible is that I write to wrong injustices because uh, this voice needs to be heard, um, because I stand for the weak, like, I mean, I hear you, no, I mean, all of us have, you know, put these platitudes into circulation, but, you know, really when it comes down to, I think that if, if, ever, if these things were always such good things, then why is everything so fucked up, even in the profession that we're talking about? And I think even the things we love are often implicated and contaminated by really fucked up shit. And often our libidinal investment in them mobilizes, even without us knowing, some of the most malign aspects of them. And I guess that's the question that I have, you know? It's like, guys, to be in love with a form that by its very nature silences someone else, for me it's like kind of fucked up, yo. I guess I got a lot of problems with it, you know? There's just I, you know, I know it's, it's, it's fucking contradictory and one has to accept limitations. I do it. I'm, I'm in the form. But I don't sleep easily knowing that, that it's every time one person speaks, they silence another person. Regardless of what you think or how much you think you've suffered and therefore deserve to speak. The truth is, the very act of speaking silencing. And I... I don't know, man. I lose sleep on that shit. Maybe I shouldn't fucking smoke so much weed, or maybe I shouldn't have been a fucking middle kid. But I, I often think, I often think, and this is a self-serving mythology. I often think there is strength to be gained, both as a person and as an artist, if you are not entirely comfortable with the thing that gives you prestige and power. I think there might be something to that. And again, this is self-serving. But certainly in my practice, the slowness with which I write reveals that I truly am troubled by this shit, whether it amounts to anything other than I don't write much. The future will tell. You know? The future will tell. And that this is a tradition that's possible for people. Guys, there are many of you who would be doing things or perhaps would feel better about doing things if that fucking paradigm wasn't floating over your head that you have to be some old fucking like orthodox believer to do it. It is okay to be ambivalent. You can still rock it. You know? All right. Who was the person who... Oh. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, the majority of people have never read anything I've written, and <laughs> the majority of poor people ain't reading, you know? And the majority of people ain't fucking reading. I mean, the thing is, is that any of us who are teachers, you know, we had some teachers over here, you know what this is. You know, you know what this is. This is fucking, this is hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> no, it is, it's hand-to-hand. -hand. This is straight up, you're in the trench, hand-to-hand. -hand. I hate to use, you could, you could tell I'm from a military family. I hate to use that metaphor, but literally you're hand-to-handing it. That to convince and create and encourage reading, you've gotta do the body work. You've gotta go one-to-one -one on people. Yeah, I could convince motherfuckers to do all sorts of fucking fucked up malignant shit, but when it comes to read, without any effort, but when it comes to reading, you gotta work really hard, you know? <laughs> no, because there's a society that doesn't believe that people should have spaces of contemplation. This is a society that tries to do everything to eliminate spaces of deliberation. And a space of deliberation is a place where you get to learn about yourself and reflect on the world around you. It is in many ways the, the precursor to a critical stance about reality. And eliminating these spaces guarantees that we're even more sheep-like than usual. Now, given those conditions, you gotta hand-to-hand -hand it. You know, 99% of the people I try to get down with reading don't get down with reading. And yet every now and then, I can hand to hand it and I curate the right book for the right person at the right time and something changes. And there's nothing else. We have no other system right now. You know, and that's all I can do. You know, I sit around and I promote the art, I promote reading, you know. I, I, guys, I'm more about promoting reading than I'm about promoting writing. I'm sorry, you guys, if 99% of the people who were like into writing were into fucking reading, we wouldn't be in this fucking situation, <laughs> you know? And I don't mean it as a knock, it's just that we've uncoupled, we've uncoupled the two in really fucked up ways. So for me, it's just a matter of hand to hand. Every now and then I figure out what book will speak to what young person? And I know when you guys do that, that shit feels fucking better than like word. It feels, it almost, almost feels better than love because it's, it's this incredible selfless thing. You've done something for someone else. You should be a librarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I, being a librarian for me would be such a bad idea. <laughs> no, I just, I give shit away, so. Yeah. All right, we have time just for a few more questions, then we're done. Who feels like they've been waiting forever? I feel like you've been waiting forever. Oh, you've been waiting forever? Defend her. We got two. Shh, silence. Got him. Gang, I got it. This is the other reason I love teaching, because you fucking young people are the shit. So let's have it. We'll start here. Sí, no, muchísimas veces la gente me pregunta vaina en español. Te lo digo, no estoy diciendo que es como 25, 23 o 24 preguntas cada lectura, pero imagínate, yo me crié y sigo viviendo en un ambiente muy latino. Yo no estoy viviendo en Ohio, aunque ahora hay muchos dominicanos. No, no, aunque ahora hay muchos dominicanos en Ohio. Sí, no, los dominicanos se están metiendo. 
eh, pero como yo lo veo eh, para mí la importancia lo que, lo que me interese mucho como artista es que nuestra realidad en este maldito país es una realidad bilingüe entonces básicamente tenemos que si es el primer paso ¿verdad? esa es la tecla que yo siempre tengo que tocar que yo me crié en un mundo en una actualidad una actualidad bilingüe entonces cuando yo trato de, de representar verdad de tratar de entender esos años, ese espacio, ese tiempo, yo no lo puedo entender solamente en el inglés, como decimos, oficial, porque yo me crié en una comunidad, como decimos, una comunidad morena. Yo, para mí, América empezó con una América African American. Eso fue, para mí, eso fue lo primero que yo viví. Entonces yo tenía que pasar por eso, después pasar por los gringos, después yo conocí un montón de boricua y cubano. Entonces uno, uno imagínate yo en New Jersey, mira yo no te lo yo no te puedo contar la cantidad de filipinos con quien yo me crié, man. Esos malditos pinoy no son fáciles, man. Man, no son fáciles. Entonces, tiene mucho que ver con esa mezcla, pero también tiene mucho que ver que yo, de lo que yo he visto en mi vida, yo nunca he visto un país que no es bilingüe, que no tiene muchísimas idiomas, ¿verdad?, circulando. Entonces, eh, no me ayuda mucho como escritor, porque a mí siempre, bueno, yo digo siempre, como cada mes a mí me mandan un email diciéndome, bueno, yo traté de leer tu libro, pues había un par de palabras en español y yo no soy mexicano. Yeah, so, shit is wild, man. But, I, but any of us who speak, you know, especially me, I have, I have this situation where, guys, I have a real, you probably wouldn't notice, but I have like a real Jersey accent. Like people would not notice if they're from, not from Jersey, but a, I have a real fucking Jersey accent. And the thing that's really interesting is how many times I walk up to people and will say a simple thing, but because they see a brown face, they suddenly their ears shut down. And they're like, no, 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 I don't get you. And I'm like, motherfucker, I said fries. You know? <laughs> So, even when you're not bilingual and you're racially marked in this country, you are bilingual. <laughs> It is fascinating. Where was the other one? These are the last ones, guys. We got to get you out of here. Go ahead. You, madam. strong language like I have a really big problem not swearing all the time in my writing people are always saying it's you, you, have, to, you have to save you know if you're gonna say fuck it has to be super powerful but then a lot of the time in your writing I really appreciate how it, it's just thrown it's riddled without uh, throughout and what do you think what is the power that is lent to you by your use of such strong language again I mean I guess I don't I don't think of it as very strong language I just think that we We belong in such a culture of respectability that you can commit colossal sexual violence against women and that's completely normative. I'm sorry, nobody was fucking acting up about the NFL before this period. 
I'm fucking sorry. Now everybody's like, I don't just mean you, us, with me as well. All of us are now like born again. Suddenly everybody's like, ah. Oh. But, you know, we are able to accept all sorts of really fucked up shit and consider them not at all a violation of the normative social moment. But God forbid somebody curses and then we flip the fuck out because <laughs> cursing has always been a way for us to shorthand discriminate against class others. And in a country like ours, in a world like ours, class, of course, is deeply racialized. Again, to kind of get back to the first part of your question, is like I'm, I'm kind of old-fashioned in certain ways. I, again, with my students, I mean, guys, I, part of how I learned how to write is that why in the world, if that's your easiest bag, why would you practice it? In other words, when my students are like, well, I want to put cursing in it because that feels natural, I'm like, what feels natural is not what you need to be practicing as an artist. <laughs> you know? If that's your bag, never fucking curse for five years and then see what you've learned. And I think that that's part of our process is we often get caught up in this whole, like, this is me, and it becomes a way to short-circuit real learning. And I always think, thank God my teachers didn't put up with that come mierderia. They were always like, oh, you're, you think you're real good at that? Never do it again. <laughs> no, but it really helps. Because no athlete would train this way. No athlete would be like, yo, my fucking cross is amazing. I'm just going to fucking throw crosses. That's insane. But artists, you talk to artists, they sound like, I don't know, they sound like they've been smoking. And I think that you would, I would encourage you, if you're being told that perhaps you should hold this in reserve, it's a polite way of saying that you've got other work to do and that your obsession on this, drawing a line in the sand, if this is a stand for my voice, isn't helping you, you know? And it's always been helpful for me. Every time I think shit is linked to my identity, I know I'm, about a 50% chance I'm just trying to duck a learning. And the other 50% it's motherfuckers fucking with you. <laughs> so the last question was this young woman, yeah? Well, I'll take both of them, you and this person behind you. Fast, let's do this. Yeah, what are some of the things I did to pay the bills? Um, well, again, it's, it was a different time, you know? There were more jobs. Well, no, it's true, there was more jobs, you guys. You know, like, I could, I could work. Guys, I could work delivering pool tables and pay my way to Rutgers. There is no job like that, currently, that could pay for Rutgers. I have actually checked, I ran the numbers. It was one of my little inequality quizzes I gave myself, you know? So, I was able to do shit that young people are being denied because of the way this thing is fucking set up. So I delivered pool tables for almost 10 years. Um, I made photocopies at a pharmaceutical corporation where it was like all the testing that they did and it would be like catastrophic organ failure at patient 11 and you would make photocopies of that. I worked. <laughs> I worked, uh, I was a, a dishwasher in a Chinese restaurant, I worked in a gas station, I worked in a steel mill. I mean, you know, I mean, that was my life, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, my friends always say, they're like, they're like, he, I just like brute work. It's strange. For someone who's like, 
<laughs> soft as shit now, you know? Yeah. But I think part of it, again, I think part of me as my art was really helpful was that I always thought that my art was the thing I gave myself. And that I never grew up in a situation ever thinking in those ages there was no internet, there was no AWP the same way. There wasn't this sense that I knew writers who were being rich doing their art. I always just thought I would have to have a regular job and then I would do my art. And I kind of got cool with that. It sucks when you're reading about 23-year-old people with contracts with their art who are like on their yacht <laughs> being like, yeah, I had it real hard, Negroes, you know? That's tough, y'all. It's like, no, it's tough to organize a healthy strategy for yourself. And Yeah, no, thank you. Again, typical immigrant stuff, right? Your jersey. Where in Jersey from? Oh man, yeah, man. <laughs> I lived on a floor at Rutgers with somebody from Bendham, man. Okay. Yeah, yeah, man. Nah, I'm in Jersey maybe like once or twice a month. Um, I mean, I live between New York and uh, up in Boston where I teach. So definitely, my sense of home has always been like kind of nomadic, but. Jersey never is far. I just say, again, I, Jersey's an easy state to reject and disavow. <laughs> no, I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people want to reinvent themselves as whatever has the most social capital. It's easier to be from New York City. Even though I live half the time from New York City, I, I just don't claim New York. It's impossible. I didn't go to high school there. And I mean, if you didn't go to high school in New York, you're not from fucking New York, you know? <laughs> But I guess part of this, part of this as artists is that, again, many of us have to find places that we're safe, you know? And I think for many of us, it's a search to find places we're safe, to find people who allow us to be safe, to create selves that allow us to be safe, you know? And uh, for me, I'm, you know, I'm 46, and uh, it, it's not an easy process. If you grow up the way most of us grow up, where you grow up poor and you grow up stigmatized for various, you know, your immigration status, racial status, you know, whatever other things you grow up stigmatized by, chances are it's not easy for you to muster up the internal and external resources to make yourself safe. And I'm here to tell you, man, it sometimes it takes you into your 40s to create this moment, to create this possibility that other people just generically understand as home. You know, a place where you are not only safe, but that all the parts of you are visible and available and alive. And that's not easy, man. And certainly I think part of the reason I go back to New Jersey as much as I do is because part of me cannot exist if I had cut off Jersey the way some people leave their homes because they don't feel safe. I was luckily had privilege where again, if I had been queer and living in New Jersey where I grew up with the kind of community I grew up, I'm not sure I'd be going back there, you know? And home has as much to do with what we need as it has to do with our own place in the grid of privilege. Anyway, you guys have been very kind. Have a good night. So, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.